didn't see it coming, the podcast about brands that learn from the past, are looking to the future, and are profiting because of it today. I'm your host, Mark Stoiber. Hi, I'm Mark Stoiber, and as 2015 winds down, I thought, why not do a podcast on predictions for the future? But, you know, you're going to be hearing a lot of predictions for the future. So I thought, well, how could I one-up that? And that's when it popped into my head. My friend, Guy Dauncey, who I've known for years and years, a champion of the sustainability movement and one of the smartest guys that I know, uh, just wrote a brand new book that fits into this show perfectly. The book is called Journey to the Future, and it doesn't predict what's going to happen in 2016. It predicts what's going to happen in 2032. I've got Guy on the show today in between book signing tours and radio appearances, a name that you're going to be hearing a lot more of. Guy, welcome to the show. Happy to be here, Mark, and happy to, happy to explore the future with you. It's wonderful. I remember we hooked up at a coffee shop just a week or so ago, and yes. we started talking about the book, and you just went off. There is so much <laughs> in here. And it's funny, because it's not a work of fiction, you say. This is, well, it's, I mean, it reading is. it, it doesn't, it reads like, it reads like a gripping story. It's a wonderful story. Great storyteller, by the way. <laughs> well, thank you. It's really, it, it's a four-day visit to Vancouver in the year 2032, by when it has become one of the world's greenest cities, by a 24-year-old called Patrick Wu from the present time, who is feeling all the same senses of worry and concern and fear about the future and and the, the doom and gloom that's been become so pervasive, especially in the environmental movement. And he's he asked the question like, well, we know that Vancouver as a city has already set a plan to become the world's greenest city. What would it be like if I could actually go there when it is the world's greenest city? And so by the magic of fiction, and, he, and suddenly, a sneeze. he finds himself transplanted. <laughs> got, I got I to talk about the sneeze. <laughs> the sneeze, well, whatever. You, you know, as an author, you, you, there's no rational way to get to the future. So you have to invent some whatever way. It doesn't matter. Once, once you got there, it's all... I so love everything's possible. I right? just had to mention it because I thought it was the really magic funny. of the One of the first thought: How do you get to the future? How well, do you, you get sneeze? To the future? <laughs> so he finds himself there for four days, and he has four days to walk around, talk to people, and um, by the blessing of fiction, he has photographic memory for everything he remembers. He writes it all down. So yes, it's a story about him and the, about twenty-eight people he meets and all the conversations he has. And my goodness, he learns so much. And as an author, this is. I've written, this is my 10th published book now, and it's by far the most engaging for me as a writer. It's been so much fun to write in this manner because the characters bring their backstories, they interact with each other, they have their own personalities, and that the process of writing brings that out. Mm-hmm. And they can also have different opinions on things. And so I can explore what the future looks like and get different senses from them. And I had to do 20 drafts of this book because it was so, there was so much creativity happening. I'd not only be sort of splurging through the pages of New Scientist, picking out every future-related story, but also thinking of major new themes of social and political change and, and, and questioning ideas I had in my head, or I should say prejudices that I had in my head, which I then changed when I looked at them in a different light. Now, hold on a minute. Hold on a minute. You just mentioned going through New Scientists. One of the things that's remarkable about this book, you want to call it a work of fiction, fine, but you've got pages and pages and pages of bibliography and and notes in here, just like a scientific review. Yeah, it's the only work of technical fiction that's got an index, that's got a full bibliography and 940 endnotes. So whenever I'm bringing something in from the future, such as instead of Wi-Fi, talking about Li-Fi, 
when the digital communication signal comes through the light instead of through a, you know, an internet hub, that's, back, that's not invented. That's for real. And I, you know, the, 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 the notes track the progress in moving towards Li-Fi. So there's no question of radiation and cancer risks. Mm-hmm. You know what? You know what struck me about this book? It, it's somewhere between us and Star Trek. You know, when we, when I was a kid, and I watched James Kirk flip open his communicator, and you got, uh, you thought, oh my God, never in the world will anything like a, a handheld device that I can actually see somebody and talk to them ever exist. Yes. And here we are. It was too crazy. This book, though, it takes us one back from that, and it it positions it in a way you go, I could see this. I could yeah. actually see this. You know, like Li-Fi. You go. It's not that far, but it's so, not far enough to, to capture so, the imagination. Yeah, so little things like there's a lot of art that comes into it. So at one point, um, Patrick, my character, and his friends are walking down a sidewalk to go to an event, and there's a poetry written into the sidewalk. It's a poetry walk, but the poetry's all digital and backlit, and there's a, there's a website where you can go and submit your poems and recommend other people's poems, and they change every month. Mm-hmm. And then in, he references downtown Vancouver on Georgia Street, there's three-dimensional, you know, holographic art that you can walk through, and it changes as you walk through it. That stuff's not happening today, but there's nothing technically to stop it happening. You know, I, I worked, um, as you know, I worked for an innovation firm, and we talk about incremental innovation. That's just putting new chrome on an old car. You've got difficult but necessary, making an electric car. Then you've got radical, which is cars that have yeah. only 20 seats allowed, I'd say. And yeah. this is something that every person in innovation and advertising should read because the, the predictions are close enough that you go, you know, if I get on this, there yes. just might be a business in it for me. There's only one or two things that I invented out of my own head without any reference. Um, one was a, a new kind of kayak that actually is designed to where the back end of it flips like a fish thanks to advanced plastic microfaces. And it's called a SIAC, and I haven't patented it. It's, it's there. It's swimming around in the future. I, um, but, other, every, but virtually every other thing I brought in is doable. I mean, and, and it's interesting the way it changed in my mind. So I've taken one of the major streets in Vancouver that runs from Hastings Street. It runs from Seymour in the, in the heart of the business, busy downtown, right to the downtown east side, which is the heart of poverty. And first draft through, or somewhere in the first 10 drafts, I just added bike lanes and a bus lane and stuff like that. And I thought, no, 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 I'm not going far enough here. And I stripped out all the traffic entirely, including bicycles. Mm-hmm. And at every intersection, I had a massive sculpture that told the history of the First Nations from starting back in the Ice Age. So the first intersection on this high street between at Hastings and Seymour is a massive sculpture of a mammoth with a baby mammoth by its side. And it tells the story of the First Nations right the way through to the heart of the downtown, when instead of a busy road right now with four lanes of traffic going in each direction, there's an amphitheater carved out in the middle of the road with lighting and public performances and stuff like that. And, I love that. and the power of imagination, and I think this could happen, you know. There's no reason why this can't happen when we allow our imagination to really get practical. My blog is called The Practical Utopian. Mm-hmm. We need to be practical, but if we're not practical, it's all what they say, unicorns and fairies. No, you know, unicorns and rainbows, that's the phrase in Canada right. at the moment. Right. You know, it's funny because I worked on the downtown Vancouver Business Improvement Association improving Hastings Street. Right. You oh, know? And, and the idea is you're going this could actually happen. This, yeah. would, this would be a one heck of a tourist attraction and give the, center, totally, the totally. city center a bit of a soul. It's a tourist attraction. It's also, in the way I write it, a spiritual path of healing. And so as people progress down this, the, the healing of the First Nations from the traumas they have to the celebration happens. So it's a real celebration of the First Nations story. So the book is certainly full of, of arts and culture, but it also goes into some very profound stuff about the nature of 
civilization itself and how it's evolving or not, and how capitalism gets transformed. Well, let, yeah, let's dig right into that because. Um, I mean, capitalism very much in everybody's mind, the whole um, political economic model that we're living in. We live in a round planet. Uh, however, we thought we've been living on a finite planet with no end yeah. to it. Um, so what does the book have to say about that when we figure out that we've only got so many resources? Can we keep yeah. growing? Well, there's two dimensions there. The keep growing, growing one, if you take it in its generic form like that, it's actually a really difficult question to address because the word growth is a very clumsy word. You and I, if we didn't grow from when we were children, we never get to be adults. If we didn't stop growing physically, we'd be 12 feet tall and life would be crazy. And we'd fall over. But you want us, you want physical growth to end around, you know, late teenage years, but, it, but emotional growth, wisdom growth, mental growth to continue and the growth of skills, which is the way we do it as humans. And so that actually is happening for our economies. I mean, that people, once you've got, you know, so many bathrooms and fridges, like it gets a bit crazy. Actually, you get less happy the more stuff you have. Well, the happiness index, right. There's a happiness index built into this thing. And so I, it's important, you know, of the major changes, one of them is certainly redefining the nature of GDP, which um, I define as gross depletion of the planet, or my character does in the future. Another is, is richly going to the core of capitalism, which is like the, the DNA of a corporation. And right now, the core DNA of a corporation says, as a director, it's your legal duty to maximize the share value and returns of your company. But when a company changes to becoming a benefit corporation, which I have happening in, big, in the future, and it's happening right now, um, the legal DNA changes. So now the director is under a, a, a dual mandate to, to maximize financial returns and also to maximize returns to the community, to the environment, and social returns and stuff like that. So, so I have this as a major change. And, and it's linked to, I, I don't see capitalism as a thing. I see it as a multiple economic cultural construct that's been built over 500 years. I mean, someone invented double-entry bookkeeping. Someone else invented the form of the corporation. Someone else invented, you know, the idea of, of life insurance. And there's about, you know, 50 pieces, the building blocks that he put together. Now, the post-capitalist economy, which I actually call the cooperative economy, it's a green, entrepreneurial, cooperative economy, is built up of the same building blocks. So one of them, for instance, is um, the benefit corporation. Another is public banking that can operate alongside private banking. So when credit is created and credit is then shared around on a scale of you know 10 to 1 because you can maximize your credit when you do that, the interest right now goes back to the private banks. When you have public banking, as they do in North Dakota, the interest returns to the public purse, which can be used to finance business development, to finance education, healthcare, and other things. So it's not, a, it's not replacing current banking, but it's, it's creating a parallel structure that allows us to share in the creation of credit. And there's a host of other initiatives, like green business certification becomes mainstream. So green, green accountancy has become mainstream in the future, because without green business certification, Every business that's not making an effort to consciously protect or restore the environment is unwittingly destroying it. Now, hold on a minute. What is holding our feet to the fire in 2032? Because that's something that's very easy to give lip service to. Yeah, two, uh, two big things. Um, number one, the ongoing climate crisis. So even though there's been phenomenal progress in this scenario I'm giving about the climate crisis, so we're down to... 50% of the emissions that we're putting out now, 20 gigatons a year of CO2 instead of 40, 
the impacts of the crisis continue because the impacts we're experiencing today come from fossil fuel emissions 40 years ago. So when we go out and drive a car today in 2015, 2016, people will experience the result of that in 40 years' time. The other big impact is that there's been another big economic crash happening, um, but with impacts far larger than the last one because the public willingness to bail, the banks, bail out the banks is, is way reduced. The public um, patience with, with excessive bank bonuses and the plutocracy is way reduced. So that leads to what I actually call is a real upgrade of the Occupy movement um, called the Omega Days in the book. Now, this mm -hmm. happened before the book was written, before the book happened. So it's happening somewhere in the period between 2016 and 2020. Where the problem with the Occupy movement was when you ask them what do they want, they say, we want the end of capitalism or the end of greed, or which is just mm -hmm. dumb. You mm -hmm. can't, it's like saying I want people to be nice. Mm -hmm. The Omega days are actually a very much more sophisticated thing where O stands for open democracy, M for meaningful work, E for a new economy, G for a green future, and A for affordable living. And each of those five pieces has five tangible organized solutions. So you've got a, a, a platform with 25 core practical solutions that the public can really get behind because they say this is really well thought through. And they're all spelled out, they're all footnoted, they're all referenced, but it builds a movement for social change which has an impetus far greater than we ever get at the moment, when every no issue gets to be in the media for more than three days, four days, and then we forget about it again. And so, you know, we think about plutocracy for three days, and then suddenly we're talking about something in the Middle East, and then suddenly we're talking about a flood in Europe. And you can't get sustained attention, whereas a, a, a unifying social political movement like that that brings all the threads together can get sustained attention when it works the media really well. And people feel that the sense of change. I mean, the Industrial Revolution brought in massive change when we look back on it. Um, and it took place over a 50-year period. So this transition into the solar age in terms of energy or into the post-industrial age, or what I call the new cooperative economy, it's a 50-year transition. Yes, and the book is halfway through it when we get there. Now, hold on a minute. You hit on something a little, a little while ago. You talked about... Um carbon emissions and that in the you know when we're, what we're emitting right now people are going to be eating 40 years from now yes. and everybody knows about that very much in the spotlight today with the cop talks in paris that even if we pull back way back we're still going to be doing adaptation and mitigation adaptation yes. versus mitigation um what do the people in the future think about us who are emitting like crazy like there's no tomorrow what do they? What do they? What do you think they're going to be? Saying? Oh, they, they, they are. It's what they are saying in the book. They're saying if only we started twenty years earlier. Yeah, those those, those bastards. The, yeah, the, yeah. And now, the Paris Conference is not referenced in the book, but the the Houston Climate Treaty, which happens in twenty twenty, is referenced. And by twenty twenty, the impacts of of storms and floods and droughts and things is becomes so heavy, and the data around how the the zero carbon, 100% renewable energy economy is so much more beneficial in economic and financial terms, has become so convincing that instead of people being dragged reluctantly to their carbon emissions, they're rushing towards getting to 100% renewable energy because they say, this is the smart way to go. Hmm. This is the beginning of the, what's called the third great energy revolution. And so that's driving change. And in the Houston conference, actually there's an agreement to have a global carbon cap limiting in gigatons, how many emissions the whole world puts out. So each country then has its cap. And each country then has to basically ration out the ability to produce and import fossil fuels. 
and individuals have to have carbon rationing because we need to reduce our use of carbon by 10% a year in order to stop. The last time the world was three degrees warmer, the sea level was 25 meters higher. And it's, you know, people are beginning to register of what this means, not just for the suffering and death, but the financial costs and the just chaos and destruction. Forget Venice. It's New York. It's, it's a, Shanghai. I mean, population only 15 million people. So China's really on board. China's really driving change in the future. Well, back to, your, back to your point that this isn't that far in the future. Just the other day, big headline in the Herald Tribune, New York Times. China, Shanghai, underwater, you know, this is something they're already drawing maps of on the front page of the newspaper today. Yeah, and the change, I mean, that's why I find the book was so encouraging for me to write, and it references the fossil fuel development movement, but last year there was $50 billion of investment capital divested. This year the commitment is $3.4 trillion. (laughs) It's just like a 60-fold increase in one year. So there's a real sea change happening and in the simplest terms, it's a cheat change from negative to positive. Climate deniers, where are they? Gone. They're just they're just like a, a dried blip. up. They're a blip on the they're a blip yeah. on the on the dried timeline. Up. Yeah. Right. So yeah. that's it's all gone. Uh, lobby groups lobbying for things that aren't helping the planet. Where are they? This, they're very. There's a active tension throughout the book, and this this actually I had to evolve into the book while I was writing it. The end of one chapter. I suddenly found myself, my character, in, you know, going out to the garden and falling asleep and having a dream. And in his dream, he saw this big black hole. I, as the author, didn't know what it was, but it came to me. What I discovered during the writing, actually, it's, it's the shadow of fascism and, and, and simplistic, fear-based, right-wing thinking that comes in response to threat when you don't have a clear pathway for progress for those who are suffering and are on the rough end of change. So if you've got people on the rough end of change, which is those on the lower incomes, those who are sort of, you know, getting past the age when they can reskill for a new economy, and they feel that the politicians have got nothing for them, they feel threatened. That doesn't sound at all familiar today. And they turn their threats against, in the past it was against the Jews or the Irish. Now it's against the, the Muslims. Muslims or, you know, or the blacks. And it's, it's a, it happens in every country that between 10 and 15% of people feel a higher level of threat and fear and no one wants to be dragged into an uncomfortable future. They'd rather stay with a, a lousy part present that they hate than a future, comf- a future thing that they fear, organized by people that dislike, like tree huggers. So re- there's a lot of the book that goes into the social justice, economic change, economic transformation to do with poverty and inequality. So, for instance, we have a basic income. I call it a citizen's income for every citizen in Canada in the book. You know, once you've lived there 10 years, you're qualified to get a free monthly basic income. And also a whole bunch of other methods. And all of these taken from in-depth economic reading of the the people who've written about inequality and looked at the policies. So it's not just vague fripperies. It's quite detailed policy analysis about how we do this. And it's it's all part of the the omega-e for a new economy and the way we transform the economy. Let's... Let's shift gears because, I mean, to me, that sounds incredibly positive. <laughs> I'd love to end on a high note like that. Let's move on to another big issue, and this is one I'm personally involved in, which is food. I'm, I'm working with a group right now called Ruby, and it's uh, an online global cooking uh, school, a culinary institute. And what they're trying to do, among other things, is bring whole food cooking and plant-based cooking to the world. So what they're seeing is a merger of healthcare and nutrition and eating. You know, yeah. where we've strayed the past 50 years away into processed food that was high on craving and low on everything else. 
they're trying to push this back into the forefront. So what yeah. does it look like in 2032? So, so one of my characters is a, a nurse in her 20s called Aliyah. She's a Syrian-Canadian who was a Syrian refugee and established and trained as a nurse. So she's able to tell Patrick about the whole change in healthcare towards functional medicine based around um, maintaining a strong immune system, building up a, you know, a strong dietary base for the way we live. And at, a, and at one point, Patrick asked a question about farming and, you know, how much farming has gone organic. And she replies, well, it's all organic. And he says, well, what? how did that happen? And she explains, really, that the government was ordered a study into the financial costs to Canadians of conventional farming. And there's a massive list from nitrate, you know, pollution of the lakes to sort of, you know, incipient causes of a number of, of chronic diseases. Um, to the climate footprint. And they basically took that cost and they translated it into a tax on chemical pesticides and fertilizers and gave, gave 100% of the income back to the farmers to help them with the transition to organic. The farmers said, realized that, that the yields are just as good under organic as non-organic. The, the, the tax disappears, all these negative things disappear and they actually get more wildlife that start restoring the soil. And so all the farmers turn organic. And there's another big emphasis that when it comes to the climate crisis, it's not enough for us to stop burning fossil fuels. We have 800 gigatons of carbon in the atmosphere, and we've got, we got to get down to 500 gigatons or so in order to get the level from 400 parts per million or 420, where it is in my book, back to 350. And one of the ways to do that is organic farming, because organic farming stores more carbon in the soil. Also changed forestry and changed pasturing um, for animals. So there's a lot of detail in that as to why all farming goes organic. And all of the meals in the book, I'm vegetarian myself, so there's definite bias in there, but the, the meals are all most delicious vegetarian food. Well, I think that's a, that's a big part of it. You know, one of the things that the, the cooking school that I work with, one of the things they talk about is taking it away from the perception of it being, you know, hippie lentils oh, to, to being as good as good French cooking. Totally delicious. I mean, yeah. I mean a, fr a friend of mine who lives and works in the house here, actually, called Goldie, brought in a, a smoothie last year, and I thought, Whoa, that was so tasty. And I asked her what was made of it. And it's in the book, along with reference to her. You actually you can actually have the ingredients. You can make it for yourself, right? So it's a cookbook. <laughs> it's, it's a cookbook, <laughs> among other things, yes. But, but the food is incredibly enjoyable. And, and little things like when Aaliyah is um, ordering, she's doing her online shopping with, for delivery by bicycle the next day. Um, but she can order online. And she uses an app. Mm -hmm. which allows her, every time she buys an item on you know, the, the, the store, which is Spud in Vancouver, where she's buying it from, mm -hmm. not just tells her the distance the food has traveled, but it tells her the calories, the micronutrients, the, the, all the, the, the goodness for it, the vitamins, the minerals, and it tracks them for her. So she can see if after a week shopping, she's really short on vitamin A. Or it's, she's like having, it's like wearing one of those Fitbits except for nutrition. It's a Fitbit for nutrition. And if, when she's growing food herself in the garden, she can put that in and so and it'll show, and it'll tell her after a week, you're going to be short on this and you need to buy it. And here's five recommendations for stuff you can get for us, plus recipes to go with it. So, so, and you can use this in the store as well. You can just scan, you know, built into the barcodes of the, of the food. You can actually scan it with your phone over the barcode. It'll immediately tell you what nutrients you're getting. 
And so at one point she orders a you know a tub of ice cream and then it, it throws her over the top so she's darn it she has to cancel it and get a you know fruit yogurt instead, right? <laughs> Again, it's not that far it's not that far removed. Anybody who's listening to this show who's an innovator, there's money to be had. I mean, I, I Google the particular apps covering this stuff and they're covering a quarter of where I'm going. But there's nothing that's not doable in what I'm talking about right now. And someone will make a million by picking up that idea alone. Well, I see I see companies like Kaiser Permanente. I see insurance companies, health insurance companies. You know, Obamacare was a big thing on the radar just last year. Anybody who wants to make a difference in how sick people are getting has to pay attention at the grocery store shelf to how much ice cream you're allowed to eat. But we all pay insurance contributions, you know, into it comes to, you know, it's far less than America. But in the functional medicine model, you're, you're, everyone's paying a basic premium. But to the extent that you make an effort and your, 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 health, your, your total health inventory score falls and you have that score from your community health clinic based on various things, you get a discount on your premium. What a wonderful gamification. Yeah. It's and so if, if you make no effort whatsoever and you're just a slob, you pay the full premium. And to the extent that some diseases are genetic origin, you can't factor them, you can't do anything about them, that's discounted. But, you know, but well, that, the, that, all, the, it, that all makes so much sense. I can't understand why stuff like yeah. that doesn't exist now. Well, part of it is one of the healthcare changes I needed to do that instead of when you go into a clinic, you, instead of having a family doctor, your primary practitioner is a nurse practitioner. And they can cover 90% of what most people need to cover going into a clinic. And they can draw on the doctor for the stuff that they can't cover. So, the nurse practitioners have the hands-on relationship, and that is, restores that sense of personal relationship, which is rapidly disappearing when doctors feel they've got 10 minutes only to be with you, and I just can't, so haven't got the pay or the financing to sustain a personal relationship. So that's another change. Oh, man, we could go on for this, on this forever. I, well, I there's, 30, on, there's 34 well, I, chapters, and the book goes into some yeah. really profound stuff. It goes into physics and biology, including a whole new theory called syntropy, which is about an, an organizational principle of self-organization in the universe that operates through consciousness. Going okay, right back to the big now, that, that is not a 30-second conversation. That's not a 30-second conversation. <laughs> I want to finish off. I want to finish off on a big, big topic that's very central right now, especially with Alberta happening. You know, everybody who's listening from the States doesn't know that Alberta is our big resource center in Canada where they pulled all the oil out of the ground. With the crash of the oil prices, Alberta is pretty much up for sale right now. Big part of your book is energy. What does energy look like? Most of the fossil fuels are being wound down entirely. It's that old thing, uh, you don't, the Stone Age didn't end because we ran out of stones, right? Yeah, I mean, right, right now, BMW has basically put out a, a market statement this year that, that by 2025, they will really cease making conventional cars altogether. All of their vehicles will be electric or hybrid electric. When you pull with the existing glut of oil on the market, if you add to that the fact that the whole world's car market is on transition, if you've got an electric car, as I have in the future, which has got a 400-kilometer, say, you know, 250-mile range, which costs, it's, it's, it's super comfortable, fabulous acceleration, but it costs one-sixth of the amount to run the car. The cost of running it is cheaper. Who's going to buy a regular gasoline car where you can have the best electric car? And I have so, the solar revolution, we've seen a hundredfold fall in the price of solar since the 1970s. So right now, if you're putting a four-kilowatt system on your roof, you're paying around $3 a watt. In 2032, it's down to $1.50 a watt, which is an equivalent of $0.05 cents a kilowatt hour for the cost of electricity, whereas most new electricity right now is 10 to 12. By 2050, the Fraunhofer Solar Institute in Germany has, has forecast that solar will cost $0.02 cents a kilowatt hour. And so the, the impact of this is just phenomenal. Then you add in 
the wind revolution with, with floating wind turbines, deep ocean wind turbines, floating solar on the, on the lakes and oceans. And, you know, buildings where all new buildings follow the passive house design, which means you need 90% less heat energy. That's already the law in, in, say, Brussels in Belgium. Every new building going up in Brussels is a passive house, passive building. So you, you're, the heating needed for buildings then is basically through one sort of um, heat exchange transfer system in, in the roof. And you don't need any engineering. You don't need any fossil fuels anymore. So you're, you're phasing fossil fuels out of building heat. You're phasing them out of, of transport. You're phasing them out of electricity. There's still an ongoing issue in the book around the full development of tra long-distance transportation, trucking, flying, shipping, where we didn't the, – the, we're, right now, we don't have those solutions at all. We're just not there. Um, and so there's a long way to go. And right now, we don't know whether that future is going to be hydrogen or biofuel or advanced electronic, electric. I believe for trucking, it's going to be electric. Um, for flying, it's probably going to be green hydrogen with using surplus screen electricity to generate the hydrogen. And for shipping, I don't know yet. You know, you've got, so there are some unknowns in the book. It's not, this is only 20, it's only 16 years ahead. So it's, it's all within our lifetime. I mean, I will not be, you know, I'll only be 16 years older. So we're all going to be alive, a lot of us, to, to see this and see it happening. But the fundamental thing that I'm doing in the book is the change from negative to positive. From, from that One of the characters says the power of our vision must be so much stronger than the power of our fear. That's what motivates change when people have a vision they're excited by. And then they move towards it with, with, with enjoyment and anticipation and not dread. Well, I think that's that you hit on a core point right there. Um, everything that we see happening in the world right now, people are fearful of what's coming, and so they're bunkering down and yes. they're going, um, the devil we know, the devil we know. We don't want to know about any devil in the future. Yep. And what you're saying, um, closing thoughts, the future is worth it. It's time that we jumped over that gap and got our bravery back and then and yeah, got the vision for the future as opposed to bunkering it down and saying, uh, let's absolutely. go back to Norman Rockwell. The right-wing response of trying to, you know, ramp up the fear is it's a very, very bad sign for a future economy and a future country because you never have creativity along with fear. You've got to have vision. When Kennedy said we're going to the moon in 10 years' time, he did not know how we were going to do it. Mm -hmm. But if you set that vision, that determination, all your best creativity, your teamwork, your innovation, your technology come to play. And so all of, and also all the great social achievements, like getting votes for women, stopping the slave trade, stopping children down the coal mine, they've been premised on a vision of success. You've got to visualize what success means. Everyone in the corporate world knows this. Everyone in sports knows this. We just haven't applied it to social change. You've got to visualize what success means and then set out to get there step by step. And then the future begins to look amazing in spite of all the current, you know, dire predictions. I can't imagine a better note to end on. Well, there's a second American Revolution built into the book, but that's another topic too. I don't, I don't even want to go there. That's in January. <laughs> we'll go there in January. I'm definitely going to have you back to talk about this book some more because we have just scraped the surfaces yeah. of it. I've, I've looked at it. We haven't, even, we haven't even gone into the first chapter yet. But Journey to the Future, I want to buy this book for all my friends for Christmas. Where do I go? Simply you go to, um, it's on Amazon in all countries. You can find all the details at journeytothefuture.ca, the book's and website. And that's .ca, not .ca. .ca. Okay. It's not in bookshops yet. It's going to take a while to do that. Um, but you can get it right now on Amazon. It'll be at your door three days later. Wonderful. And again, folks, when you look it up and you can't remember the name of the book, look up Guy Dauncey. That's D-A-U-N-C-E-Y. All right, Guy, thank you so much for taking the time. Get back My on pleasure, the book Mark. tour. My pleasure, Mark. Thanks so much. Take care. Talk to you. You've been listening 
to Didn't See It Coming, the podcast about brands that learn from the past, are looking to the future, and are profiting because of it today. I'm your host, Mark Stoiber. If you want to get a hold of me, drop me an email at mark, M-A-R-C, at markstoiber.com, M-A-R-C-S-T-O-I-B-E-R.com. Have a good one.